You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has me. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski. And most occasions, Yitzhak and I sort of like circle around each other, both movie aficionados, devotees, experts, as you will, darshanim. But usually I tend for some of the Hollywood classics, highbrows or some perhaps a little known film noir that has some sort of important meaning for today. And Yitzhak consistently brings out some of the movies that were some of science fiction's interesting entries, something sometimes called schlock, sometimes called uh, monster flicks. But I think here, although we've come to appreciate each other's interests, here we have a film that we both really, really like, even before we ever knew of each other. But this is a film that I discovered I guess one late night when they used to have the CBS movie, I think it was like a 1030 after the, after the local news. And I guess I must have seen it probably around 1970. I guess is when I saw this movie for the first time. And it was, it was shown on, on, on sort of network TV. I'm talking about 1960s Wolf Rilla. This is director, the village of the damned. We've mentioned it before, just in passing, but it has as its star one of my favorite villains, George Sanders, who in this film plays sort of a, a really plays the hero, but who in, in, in at least in one part of the film really contemplates something somewhat something quite villainous, and that is uh, to allow these monstrous children who have landed in a way on our planet. Now they didn't really land on the planet in the normal way. They are children that have been there's somehow aliens have implanted into the wombs of women still able to bear children in towns across the world as it's discovered later. And these women all after the whole town is blanketed by a blackout, which sort of like puts everyone in a sleep that's impossible to wake from. After a few hours, everyone seems to be back to normal. And the women 
in these towns are discovered to be pregnant. As the film elucidates, in various sections throughout the planet, the aliens have dropped their seed into these women. And within a few months, not your usual nine-month pregnancy, but a much quicker gestation period releases a huge, wonderfully formed, incredibly mature for their baby's eyes, these alien beings who are emotionless, who age within a year and a half. They're already the age, they already look like four or five-year-olds. And by the time they're two or three, they're actually already nine, 10, 11, or 12. And they have the power to control people's minds and they can get people to do anything. They could cause people to shoot themselves. They could create hazards. They have maybe even the power of telekinesis. I don't remember exactly. I mean, they seem to have incredible powers and they are all like a hive mind. They all, what one learns, the others all learn instantaneously. It sounds like something that has been done over and over again. And that's true. It has whether it's the Borg or whether it's, it's, it's other films. Now, of course, there are films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is, has a different type of horror. Here, of course, it's the children. And this demon spawn, although it's never ever confirmed where they're from, uh, they clearly represent a threat to humanity. Now, I guess their threat is, is because they are going to, I guess, continue to uh, to grow and take over people's minds. And perhaps, you know, this planet is the planet. I mean, because Baruch Hashem, there's no explication. <laughs> Unlike uh, some of these other weaker films where what was really behind everything, you know, becomes some some serial villain describes what exactly is the plot and what they're actually after. You sort of just get it because here are these children that have come out of the wombs of Sometimes women who are desperate to have children who have been unsuccessful up until this point, or young girls who are shamed originally, or old housewives who, who whose husbands have not been away and, and they are uh, suspected of adultery. These children, of course, don't really care so much about uh, their birth mothers. Uh, and of course, their fathers aren't really their fathers, although... In the film, uh, the star child, uh, played by Martin Stevens, uh, I found out Yitzchak that it was actually wasn't Martin Stevens' voice. And they actually they used a, an adult woman, a la uh, Bart Simpson. <laughs> so I'm not sure exactly what Martin Stevens did. I guess he was lip syncing, or I guess perhaps they thought you know his voice just wasn't didn't really have the tenor or the sound that they wanted. I I, I met him as an adult and. Uh... Just very briefly, I, I thanked him for showing up at a convention that was in New Jersey. I, mm-hmm. I, so many other people at the convention, so I didn't, I didn't ha- have any conversation with him or get his. Yeah, I'm, again, I've talked about his incredible. I talked about his incredible role about a year later in yeah. The Innocence, where right. he actually plays a very mature adult role. Here too, again, he's he's obviously playing older than his years. Um, yeah. And he is sort of the leader of this group, like as, as, as a really horror apocalyptic film. But actually it's settled, it centers in on this English town. Now, of course, the, the film is based on a, I guess it was somewhat of a hit science fiction uh, novel in 1957 by John Wyndham, 
off pod, I read to you from his Wikipedia page that the man had about seven or eight names and he was he had been writing since his early 20s for all different types of publications in the United States as well. A lot of pot boiler science fiction detective stuff. And that seems to be one of the ways he was able to, to, to put some food on his table. But he really started hitting it out of the park. Uh, with his science fiction novels of the 1950s, writing under the name John Wyndham, which is a shortened version of of of, of his complete name, and of course the Day of the Triffids, uh, which is about it's clear what you know the aliens have landed and they have their tripods setting up everywhere, a la H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. But then you have you know his book, The Midwich Cuckoos. And although I haven't done research on it, I think it's clear why he calls it the Midwich Cuckoos. Midwich is this city, this little hamlet and village where this all takes place, where one of the places on Earth takes place, and this is where uh, the novel is set. And I don't remember, I, I think I read the novel after I saw the movie, I went out to find it. And I think the reason why it's called Cuckoos, and I think I told you this before, Yitzchak, is because the cuckoo bird is a bird that drives out uh, the original bird that has formed the nest takes it over for himself and really, you know, it, it becomes extremely aggressive in that way. And well, it, think, it places her, her, she places her own eggs. It places her own eggs in the nest of, of, of another of bird for, forces right. the other bird to raise, to raise her children. So I think that's why the cuckoos were actually was what was going on here. Uh, they were using human women to to actually, I guess, give that aspect of DNA that was necessary to form these beings, but they're you know, the the whatever the alien spirit, the tsura that was given in by you know obviously beings that were beyond our uh, level in terms of intellect and understanding. Well, the interesting thing was in the book there there was much more of an explicit alien presence. You actually saw you know it was. Describe, they described the flying saucers being over the town until, you know, and then all the people uh, blacking out and then waking. In, in the other words, they saw saucers. Yeah. In the movie, I guess mostly for because of. Uh, yeah, it would cost less. Yes. Right. Yeah. But it actually, it winds up, even though it's a budgetary issue. Oh, it's it, much it better. Winds, it's much better without it. You know? Yeah. yeah the, the sense of mystery is, 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 is increased. It really is, by the way, and, and, and I think many people have seen the film have complained about how it spends such a long time in the setup. And I actually love that. Uh, you really get a sense of life in a small English town. You get a sense of the fealty of the community to the military, because in the beginning, it's the military. You think perhaps it's some sort of uh, Russian or some other sort of attempt by who knows what sort of nefarious communist power to to do something and and you see you know the stodgy old british stiff upper lip guys trying to figure out what's going on and you see it from their point of view and uh it was just marvelous even even the village itself you have your you know your your typical sort of the kindly somewhat worldly doctor who's caring for all these women uh, and you have, you know, the the fellows who are just the uh, the proletariats who are, you know, angry and and upset about and just want to just kill them. Uh, so it is really a, it, it does a great job, I think, 
giving, and it was actually a worldwide hit, to give a sense of what English life was. Now, we were mentioning off-pod that the first treatment of the film was done by Sterling Siliphant, who was an American writer. And I think we were talking about, you know, there was talk about transferring the whole idea to the United States. Uh, I think they always wanted originally when the, when the, you know, in 1957, when they bought the rights and they were talking in 1958 about making the film already, the idea was to have Ronald Coleman as the protagonist. Now, let me just explain. The protagonist means he is the, the putative father of, you know, the, this, this band of, of alien slash, you know, super children. And he uh, is also a a professor, uh, someone that the government consults. Uh, it's not clear exactly what his level or his area of expertise is. I mean, in the book he's presented as pretty much a, a know-it-all. You know, in the in the uh, in the remake in the '90s, they had Christopher Reeve playing him, and it was almost like, yes, this man is a Superman. You know, this <laughs> could be anything. And they had Mark Mark Hamill as the priest. The, oh, they have a pre. Yes, I can, right. The the priest in the film is also quite quite clueless <laughs> as to what this might portend. And you know, uh, the point well, that though was, that was the reason actually that it was switched to England because the American in, in America the Catholic Church is much more stronger than in England, where you have the Church of England, which is a little bit more liberal on a lot of things. And uh, they actually the Catholic Church was offended by the idea of this movie because they felt that it was representing perhaps uh, some sort of, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, making fun in a way or a parody of the... Of the virgin of the, birth, and maybe God, that maybe Jesus himself is, you know, if you, think, if you think God impregnated um, the Virgin Mary, then perhaps you should believe that aliens can impregnate everyone. Yeah, it's interesting that the film doesn't really, you know, openly or blatantly and make that type of connection. Yeah, I mean, the the film is much more subtle, obviously, than the book. You know, in that time, they couldn't really well, be so explicit uh, in the books well, about. Well, I thought it was interesting, Yitzhak, that you know Ronald Coleman at that time was married to Benita Hume, who was also an actress. A second marriage, or I think, after Coleman died, Benita Hume took up with George Sanders, and George Sanders, of course, had made a career playing villains. I mean, there was a couple of early films he made in the late 30s and 40s where he was played the hero. But I've talked about how he is he is really the most delicious villain that, that Hollywood almost ever produced. I could you know, you could see Coleman in the role. But here, you know, when when Sanders sort of took up with Coleman's widow, it seems that she pushed him and pushed the studio to to take Sanders in the lead and 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 the, and the writers the producers and I think Wolf Rilla himself knew that they had to take Siliphant's uh, treatment and actually insert so many of these little pieces of real verite of what English life was like and 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 viewing the film now you know 50 something years after I saw it the first time I was so taken by that it was so it, it seemed authentic now, you're right, this know-it-all professor, what is he doing there? He's obviously many, many years older than his beautiful young wife, who they can't seem to have children. And before they realize how everybody in the town is pregnant, there are some actually wonderful little moments between the two where, you know, you could see that despite his stodgy intellectualism, how how moved he is that perhaps his wife 
is pregnant and how caring he is for her. And you see a, a, a very sweet side of his. But, you know, as the children are born, you know, instead of reacting in outrage, his intellectual curiosity is stoked. And he begins to theorize, and he actually is brought in by the foreign by those foreign service and others to try to figure out what's going on with this child. Uh, and and when they talk about how the Russians have nuked the city where these beings have appeared, uh, he says that this is of course something that England can't do. We have a chance to perhaps learn from them. Uh, they could, if we could, perhaps turn them, if we can uh, show them and guide them. Uh, with their superior intellect, they could perhaps help us cure uh, all the ills of the planet. Uh, they could actually help us advance. Uh, you know, and, and there's even talk. If, if you remember, it's like the old, you know, exposition scene where everybody says what they think it is, and someone says maybe it's a mutation, and maybe this is where humanity. This is how humanity has to go on to the next step, a la 2001 and Chariot of the Gods, and other different types of things. That theory is raised. Then maybe what we need to do is recognize this gift from the gods, as it were, as a way to push towards the Ubermensch and the superhumanity that might proceed from it. The Sanders character, I think in the in the film, he's called Zelebi, as you say, it's taken from from actually from the book itself. You know, he he decides that he'll teach them, and of course, uh, the uh, you know their leader refers to him as father. Uh, you know, and of course, they can read minds. That's something I think that was added that wasn't in the book that they could read minds. They could read. They could read people's minds. It actually becomes a very important plot point uh, in, right. in, in in the film. One of the things that you know the film does again deal with this idea where one where you know his son, of course it's not really his son, tells him that he could actually be like them. In other words, humanity could actually chuck off their emotional side and really sort of bring out and and elevate their intellectual side and become just like them. One of the the boy actually says to them, he says, "Father, you could be like us." If you would, if you could somehow kill that emotional part of you, and of course, there's always been these theories that we only use 10% of our brain and things like that, whether those those things are true or not. But that's another idea that the the movie has is that yes, they might be from outer space, but again, are we becoming like this? Is our fascination with science pushing us to this? We could be this way, possibly. Maybe mankind is is possible if he can somehow pare away his emotional loving aspects and the things that draw away to draw him away from intellectual growth. He could be just like these kids. This is one of the things that the, the children say. The special effects, again, other than you know the slow motion camera and stopping the camera, you know, and freezing the frame, which are which are very obvious. Even the outfits that the kids wear, you know, these blonde wigs that seem like pasted on. And and I guess the uh, special effect of when they're reading your mind or controlling you of their eyes uh, glowing in glorious black and white, which I guess is really, um, which, you know, it has this really, again, when I saw it when I was 10 years old, of course, uh, it was really scary. And that is really, if you take a look at many of the posters of the film, that's one of the things that they really pushed their glowing eyes. Right. Yeah. I remember the most. It was, it was really quite scary for me also. I think the first time I haven't seen it in a long time, but that was the 
something that I recall very. Right. And, and I guess let's talk about what, what makes that scary is the idea that these beautiful, innocent looking children, that really what's within them is so dark and evil and something that we externally, we want to just love and cuddle and, 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 and smile about can really be the most devious and terrible. And of course, this was uh, a similar you could have in The Exorcist, of course, and in The Omen, where you have children taken over, actually, uh, actually, uh, progeny of the devil. And and this is sort of you know what was you know part of the the, the greatness and the horror of this film. I mean, the, the the whole thing with the eyes. It reminds me of there was a probably the to me the most frightening episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents was based on a uh, Ray Bar- Bradbury actually wrote the the script to that episode. And I when whenever on Nick at Night I would watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I always wanted to see the joke at the beginning and fall asleep before this, the show started. Because if I fell asleep in the middle of the show, I was afraid I'd have nightmares. But if I made it to the end, usually there was some kind of a happy ending. And that was the one episode where there wasn't a happy ending, and it bothered me so much. And it also ended with a child with glowing eyes after eating some alien mushrooms. And it was, again, this it was combining the invasion of the body snatchers and the village of the damned, all these stories together, kind of in a in a short episode of Alfred Hitchcock, but the, the, the character that, that Sanders playing there, he has a real character arc there because he's, he's compassionate to these children. He cares about them, but he's also really kind of the one who's their protector. He's the one who his, and their enabler in a sense. And yes. He, that's what I mentioned. Guilt and, over that. So, no, and, and that's similar to, you know, Walter Matthau's, character in failsafe where you have you know pure science saying we can deal with a nuclear holocaust you know you know let's go on to the next stage he really is cold in that way and he's he's ready to protect clearly you know murderous beings for the sake of something greater again again you go back to alien where you have the company really wants to save this being, even though it's one of the, you know, the probably the most destructive, terrible force in the world. Actually, Alien is very similar to to the Village of the Damned, where it takes on the form, you know, the the this being takes on the form of whatever it impregnates. Of course, it it, it changes it in a grotesque way. There's even, I think, some Alien films where dogs. Get infected. So this is this is very similar. Somehow this intelligence needs, you know, the human to be the host in order to produce this, you know, this monstrous, angelic-looking being. And that, that's really, I guess, what makes it a little bit different than Alien, because <laughs> in Alien, you know, you, you definitely, you know, you, you see so a very, you know, and so. But you have a lot of these movies where they do want to protect. You know, there's always a sign. Well, the thing. There's another example. The scientist. Who wants to protect this this creature that almost kills him? Yeah. You know, the, Again, you know, over here, of course, they are children, and half of them, you know, seem to at least had, the, you know, the DNA of of their mothers, although they they are astonishingly similar looking. But it definitely seems like you know they, the aspect of them are are clearly human because you know they 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 couldn't have been formed uh, without you know, the human contribution. And I think that's part of really what, what makes it different than, you know, it's just some sort of being that lands, whether it's ET or whatever it is that we need to, you know, discover or probe. We, you know, the enemy is really within us. 
you know, when when Sanders realizes that, you know, the, you know, sort of like, you know, the Vilna Gone, you know, couldn't be taught anymore after a certain age. You know, Sanders realizes that he's he's not going to be able to do much with them. They are they are ready to move on, although he has knowledge and in some ways they are thirsty for it. They are they are going to outstrip him in their thinking and in their capacity to understand. And he realizes that he needs to do something. And it's at that point that you know he concocts a plan where he can destroy them, and he can do it in a way where he can use another power. And again, spoilers ahead if you want to if you want to skip the next four or five minutes. But basically, he uses the power of of subterfuge, of being able to the power of imagination. Right? What he does is instead of you know we say, "What are you thinking?" So do we think in thought pictures or do we think in ideas? So if if Zelebi is thinking, now I've got to kill them, now the bomb that I planted in my suitcase is going to go off, they obviously will realize that. And who knows what they'll do? They'll make him, you know, you know, take the bomb and, you know, eliminate it or swallow the bomb, whatever they can do in terms of their mind control ability. But what he does, Yitzchuk, is he uses a picture. He pictures something, which again is a different faculty of the mind. He pictures that brick wall, right. right? And and when they try to read his mind, all they get is an image, not an idea. They don't get words. And I think in that way, although you would think it's just a Jungian type of like archetypal, you know, idea, right? And and, and the, the which I would say is tethered not only to our imaginative faculty. But the aspect, the stubbornness, the ability, the power of the will. Again, you can have an intellect that that or, or that is maybe moved by a certain uh, prerogative that it must continue to exist or kill to exist or whatever it is, like the alien uh, in Alien. But here, what Sanders uses to very vanquish seemingly them is the ability of fortitude to to trick them. And to actually use human gumption and determination, plus the imaginative faculty. And I think in that way, it is, you know, I don't know if, if that was Wyndham's uh, idea, but Siliphant and, and Rilla and whoever wrote this film, I think are really I- implying and really saying this, that we do, yes, we should recognize this intellectual aspect of ourselves, but we also have this other thing, which, which can save us. And that is something that could allow us beyond Seichel, so to speak, to be unbending, to be courageous, to be willing to to die for a greater cause. All those things are things which I think are are the symbol of that of that brick wall, that brick wall, that image of human creativity in a way. I mean, that's I think uh, perhaps a reading. I, I think part of it is also his recognition of his responsibility. That he's, he, you know, he he has. Oh yes, to... he, he realizes that he has let the, he has let this happen. People have died because of him. Yes, but uh, but again, Yitzchak, and he he erred in that way. It is you're right. Part of it is a penance as he sends his wife away and his young wife away and his brother-in-law. It really is. It, it, it can be seen, and it really was a sleeper hit. The sequel is built on the fact that when. And again, spoilers here, so you might want to not listen here. Um, the sequel is built on the fact that as the the building explodes, 
then as you see, as the movie, as you say here, the, the, the big letters, the end, you can see in the fire and flames of the schoolhouse where, you know, the, seemingly they've all been charred to death. The eyes seem to float away as if whatever supernatural or beyond or space powers that were put into these bodies can somehow float and find other hosts. And I, I, I don't remember. I remember watching the beginning of, of Children of the Damned, and it really is so inferior uh, to this film. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I only remember seeing it once. It was, uh... Yeah, yeah. It. I think this is again. It's 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 in a way a very much a product of this. Po- you know, you know this middle of Cold War. This this England. You know, determining about what it was about, uh, trying to sort of like, uh, you know, think about its 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 what made it different than the U.S., different than Russia, different than the power players. It really is very much a slice of of its time. Look, uh, there's no question that you know Sanders continued to be active in film uh, in the '60s. You know, he he was uh, he was in with Peter Sellers in um, The Shot in the Dark, and I, I guess the first time I actually heard him was when I went to see The Jungle Book in 1967, uh, where he played Shere Khan. Who is <laughs> what a great villain that was too, as well. <laughs> the Jungle Book is really underappreciated. It's, it's most people hate the Jungle Book, of course, because of the very inferior animation compared to Pinocchio and some of these other, you know, incredible works. But no, it was already when Disney wasn't around anymore. It was. Yeah, right. Disney had died, but the voice acting in the Jungle Book is really fantastic. Whether it's whether it's Lou Harris or Sebastian Cabot or Sanders. Throwing Holloway, it just has. You know, it's really just a. Uh, uh, it's really great, and you know Sanders. You know he unfortunately at the end of his life he suffered from dementia, but you know it's always terrible when you have somebody who really of such obvious intelligence, you know, losing it the way he did. But uh, you know I think this is one of his more interesting roles. It, it, again, it, he doesn't really have to do that much in terms of you say there is a character arc but you know he he doesn't have like many many great soliloquies but i just think he 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 is really the glue that keeps this baby together it might be one of the reasons why the sequel uh didn't you know didn't really take hold and, and again it probably should have been left alone the author he he decided not to make a sequel yeah john windham wolf rilla i don't believe made anything that was, you know, I'm sure he had some work in, in, in a number of uh, television programs and, and, and films. I know that he, he worked in the, in the BBC. Uh, and I'm sure that, uh, uh, you know, you could probably find in his filmography, interesting things, but I think here he really does a, a wonderful job staying out of the way. A lot of great shots, a lot of great set setups and angles. He did make the movie Cairo uh, in 1963 uh, he brought Sanders back, Sanders, yeah, and and Sanders was in that as well. Um, yeah. Cairo, of course, is a uh, a remake of the Asphalt Jungle, uh, you know, a caper, you know, a caper crime film. Now, this was this was in many ways, you know, Rilva's top film, you know, the film that most people will remember him. And 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 again, part of what makes great science fiction horror films, you know, and putting them together like this is. Lack of, you know, not, you don't need exposition. You have enough great acting. And the directors and writers came up with just the proper 
amount of special effects not to overwhelm the story. And I think in many ways, I think it's a template for what can what can still be very successful. You know, horror, sci-fi. Uh, again, you have, you know, the Stephen King. This is really Stephen King's area. I think this is more well done than than anything King ever did. I'm not I'm not a big King fan. But. Well, the problem I think with Stephen King is is he overwrites. You know, John Wyndham I think is writes in a succinct, you know, interesting way, a dynamic way. I think King, you know, <laughs> you know, King can't. King is in love with his own characters to the point that he, you know, well, he has I, to, I, I've heard critics say that that Wyndham also overwrote and that the book that the movie actually did a better job than the book. And no, many, I, 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 listen, I, it's been years since I've read them, but we're you know comparing them to King. I mean, Stephen King is, but but this is the area of sci-fi horror together, and you know, and, and also the the something that King often does is that he doesn't explain. It just, it just is. And that's, and, and he's probably influenced very highly by this. Yes, yes, yes. So anyway, it's really out there. And I, I think, you know, for, for our listeners, I think this is something which we hope you'll, you'll discover and we hope that you, you'll appreciate it as much in Yitzhak as I can. Cause I think we, you know, we could just go on and on extolling it. So watch your step on the way out, everybody. We'll catch you next week. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.